The most powerful businesses typically are where you've got a combination of fantastic physical features and product and then also a fantastic presentation of brand and emotional connection. And so art meets science is really what you're typically looking to achieve. Welcome to Scaling Up, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. This podcast aims to tell the stories of great Australian growth companies as told by their founders and CEOs. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com. Hi, I'm Ed Cowan and thanks for joining me on Scaling Up. Today's guest is Bruce Buchanan, and while unknown to many, Bruce is one of Australia's great entrepreneurs. As CEO, he scaled Jetstar to Asia's largest low-cost carrier, and then he co-founded Rocked, a global marketing technology business with over $100 million in revenue that's growing rapidly. Most importantly though, Bruce has seen it all. He's seen very big and billions in revenue right down to startup land. And so he was a great person to chat to about the key issues and pain points that entrepreneurs face in their journey, like scaling teams across multiple offices and geographies, raising money, founder transition, and the need for pragmatic leadership. I must admit, at times, this conversation went a little off script, but that's what made it so fascinating to me. It was the twists and the turns. Bruce He's just so intellectually curious about so many issues. He's a true high performer. I really loved my time with Bruce. And for me, this is an episode for those who find inspiration in hearing from someone who is currently at the absolute top of their game. Bruce Buchanan, welcome to Scaling Up. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on this show. You're a hard man to to research. I must admit, you've you've stayed out of the limelight. So thanks for, for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, the purpose of this podcast is to inspire entrepreneurs, but to be fair, once they hear your story, they, they might feel slightly insecure or intimidated. I'm going to give a quick sort of snapshot for context around your corporate career and, and how it's led you to this point. Feel free to jump in, correct me, but I think it's good to try and pull a few of these threads together. You started your career at uh, Boston Consulting, running their consumer practice, essentially worldwide, so you weren't just a consultant. You got pushed over to Qantas as a consultant, helped uh, bring their frequent flyer program to life. One thing led to another, moved over to Jetstar, essentially when it was a thought bubble, uh, and, and helped scale that business initially. And then as CEO to the, the biggest low-cost carrier in Asia, just a, a phenomenal story in itself. And we, we could have a whole podcast there. Um, you decide New Horizons beckon, leave Jetstar, when many are touting you maybe to, to take over Alan Joyce's job as the CEO of Qantas, to look for new opportunities. And you'd always been an entrepreneur at heart and rocked, which was in a different form, came to you and essentially founded that business. And I'm not going to do rock justice. This is a, a lo-fi pitch and, and you can give the next layer. But rocked is essentially a transaction marketing platform. And I think a great example is I was buying President's Cup tickets for the golf in Melbourne uh, last week. I was on Ticketmaster, bought my tickets, pumped up to see the golfers. Right at that transaction moment, I buy my tickets, up pops an offer for a hotel for parking at the golf. And that is your software that's doing that. 
Yep, that's that's what we do. I mean, that's a visible part of what we do. So we're, we're, you know, at the end of the transaction, you see a lot of the marketplace or distributed commerce offers, but a lot of the secret sauce we do is actually helping uh, those e-commerce companies actually power their own products and services as well. Of course, we'll get into more what Rock does, but I think the common thread that is really interesting to follow up front is you've basically dedicated your corporate career to understanding consumers and, and specifically the consumer psyche at that transaction moment. What have you learnt over your 20, 25 years of, of looking into this psyche that, you know, that you've applied to Rocked specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have never just heard my career described that way. So it's actually interesting to reflect and, uh, and think about that. I mean, I always thought of myself as someone that's passionate about growing businesses and putting great teams, people around brands. And that's you know, if I think about getting up, but you're right, there's a thread, there's this intellectual thread that goes through it, which is very much tied to brand, consumer, and consumer behavior. And I find it fascinating, you know, there's so many concepts that you bring together around consumer behavior that is so not obvious when people are thinking through, you know, what actually makes a difference. And lots of people think about, you know, the basics of selling a product, price, and what the product is, and they lose context of the emotional aspects of how and how important the emotional connection is with a product. And then there's a whole lot of really bizarre things when when you actually get into consumer behavior that are not at all obvious. You know, I find things like the paradox of choice in consumer behavior fascinating. You know, that most businesses would naturally assume if they had a broader range of products or services, they would win in a category. But consumer behavior is such that the leading players typically often have to do the complete opposite. You know, the, the most profitable grocery chain in the world is Trader Joe's and it specializes in presenting one or two SKUs in every particular category mm -hmm. rather than actually presenting 50 SKUs because they realized early on that 50 SKUs actually result in less purchase behavior than one or two. And that's because consumers get overwhelmed. And so things like that with consumer behaviors, uh, I just find fascinating. And it's it's got these tentacles that go into so many different parts of the way we interact with brands and businesses today. And what was the genesis of that fascination? Look, I've always been where science meets um, art, I think is a really interesting uh, intersection point. And there's only so much you can actually understand through the numbers. You've actually got to step back and actually start to think about uh, things in a slightly different way. And so the most powerful businesses typically are where you've got a combination of fantastic physical features and product and then also a fantastic presentation of brand and emotional connection. And so art meets science is really the, the, what you're typically looking to achieve. And that doesn't matter whether it's an airline or a technology business or anything that we do. You know, the iPhone's a classic example of Steve Jobs' sort of innovation around Apple is largely around those sorts of same concepts. But I think where those things intersect, you get some really magical outcomes uh, in terms of products and consumer behavior. As I sit here in my Allbirds uh, shoes, <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Uh, art, meeting science and, and that resonance that I have with that brand because of the, the narrow focus. Following that thread on, you've had two extraordinary successes, one at Jetstar, now at Rocked, which is you know, $100 million in revenue growing at 55% a year. You must be doing something right in, in this secret source, but there are a lot of pain points that you would have come across uh, in your time at Jetstar just some of the general sort of pain points of, of scaling in your two experiences have you sort of applied again to Rocked? 
Yeah, the two really interesting questions. I mean, on one side, you've got um, this, what are the pain points? And the other side of the coin, you've got this capital efficiency and how do you actually think about raising funds and Maybe cap- we'll come back to that. capital we'll efficiency, that. yeah. And I think the two are somewhat intertwined in, in the way I think about businesses and the, and the way you drive success, I think, because um, it's hard to have the time and the, and the ability to actually get a business proposition right. And that might be right from a product market fit or right from a team perspective or right from lots of different perspectives. But if you don't have the time to get that right, you can often get forced into a situation where it's, you're scaling something that's inefficient. So I'll come back to that. But I think that the major pain points for me are typically always around people. So to build any any business, you need great people. And I think most problems you face in business typically stem from leadership issues. And m- most people will try and jump in and solve them from a technical perspective. They'll try and get in and find the answer to the problem. But I always like the idea of stepping back and asking the five whys, you know, actually step back and say, look, what is it that's driving this particular problem? And inevitably, the problem always comes back to people and leadership. You can't scale a business and you can't scale a business rapidly without the right team and people. And it sounds obvious, but if you think about it, it's very hard thing to do for an entrepreneur. You build a group of people around a brand, those people take you to point A, then the business starts to take off and it starts to scale at 50, 60, 100%, whatever that particular growth rate is. Suddenly that team of people are now, you're asking them to do two, three, four X every couple of years. And there's groups of people that will scale with that, but there's a lot of people that won't scale at that sort of pace. So it's about how do you actually build a leadership team capable of taking a business from X to 4X to 10X to 20X. And ultimately, you can spend a lot of time solving problems in the business, but if you devote more time and energy towards the people and leadership issues, you'll ultimately be able to continue scaling the business. And they're the things that people tend to do incorrectly, I think, when they get stuck at a business and you see a business level out or stop growing. And the primary reason that typically is, is a management team or the capability within the leadership ranks more broadly is not able to keep pace with the growth of the business. And that's, that, that requires you to sort of almost be able to see around corners. So you almost have to be able to say, look, I, can, I know where I am today and I know this person's capable of running this team as it sits today. But also know in six months and 12 months, uh, this business needs to be doing something different. And recruiting people and training people and bringing people into a business takes a long time. So if you're not thinking about that ahead of the curve, you can hit these big road bumps where you actually, the business just stops growing for quite a considerable amount of time. And are you you finding yourself coaching these people or do you think people, uh, obviously you're predicting talent and, and the ability of people to scale with you, but some people don't have that capability and will you still invest your time to see where their limit is? I think, yeah, there's two aspects of that. One of which is you definitely want to invest in people so they can get the most out of that. The other thing you want to do is have very transparent, open conversations with those people because there's one path that I see entrepreneurs do, which is they just move people out of the business or they get to a point where they can't have the conversation with the individual and then they get to a breaking point and they say, this is not working, sorry, I need to bring someone in. The actual right way to do it is to have a collaborative discussion with the individual and say, look, when we get to a certain point, this business is going to need, you know, someone capable of running an engineering team of 50 or 100. And we think you have a fantastic role in this business and we want to keep you engaged, building capability and building talent in the business. 
And if that conversation goes well, that person will stay in the business, mm -hmm. help you recruit the next person. Uh, that organizational knowledge won't be lost. If that conversation doesn't go well or you don't have that conversation, that person's gone yeah. and you lose all that organizational knowledge. And that's a hard thing for most people to do because they tend to be these conversations they find very uncomfortable. They treat it like a, a boyfriend, girlfriend or couple type situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're having a breakup yeah. when actually it's not like that at all. It's about actually we're all a team. We're a sporting team. We're putting a bunch of people on the, on the field and we've moved up a division and suddenly we need three new players on the team. And if you talk to the, the people in the organization like that, everyone gets in a mental map where they go, yeah, of course, we want to keep winning as a group of people. And if we want to keep winning as a group of people, we need to continue to increase the bench strength. I think it's a, a, a great sort of uh, analogy to, to apply to your staff. I mean, the key is that people are effectively creating a culture within your business yep. that you can control. But you know, how do you think about your organizational culture? Have you had any significant influences in, in how you think about creating these cultures? But also, I imagine there's this huge pain point of scaling these cultures across offices, Rockstar in Sydney, you're now based in New York, time zones, you've got offices around the world. It, it, it can become very tricky, I imagine. It's incredibly tricky. Managing tyranny of distance between offices is really hard and getting the balance right is an enormous investment in time and energy and increases the risk of failure dramatically. So the challenge you've got as an Australian business is do you want to be a success in the Australian stage and you can keep everyone co-located and your chance of success goes up uh, dramatically? Or do you want to take on the global opportunity and then you need to spread yourself into other markets? You can't successfully build a business in the US from Australia. Mm. So as a founder, that means you need to spend a lot of time in that other market or a CEO or as a senior leader. That has a cost. And so there's lots of questions and they get thrown up. First of all, do you want the business to be here or here? You know, do you want the global business or the local business? If you want the global business, is that you are prepared to make that sacrifice? Or do you need someone else to be able to make that sacrifice? And you've moved your family to New York, five kids, a, yep. a wife who's a, a corporate beast in her own right. You know, it, it's, a, it's a big move. It's not something you can choose lightly to uproot your entire family and move from you know, Sydney to, to New York City. It's really tough. And they're the sorts of decisions that you need to spend a lot of time with your, with your partner, family talking about. And it becomes a choice where ultimately sometimes that choice is one that is not made by you. It's made collectively by the family. And so that's an important journey as well. So when I moved to New York, I, I commuted for two years. Um, and, you know, the family wanted to make sure I was absolutely sure this is what we wanted to do. And so there was a bit of a testing period. And that that has a cost as well because you're constantly jet lagged while you're traveling. But it also demonstrates to family that this is actually something you're really serious about. You built the foundations. There's, you know, the risk profile of them all moving over is a lot less. So there are ways that you can do it, but it does require a massive commitment, both personally, physically, yeah. <laughs> in every sort of uh, dimension. And it's not just you individually. You're all a, in. You're all in. You've got to be all in if you want to make something like that work at that level. And you touched on the, the jet lag. I know you're a man that likes to fly economy class <laughs> around the world and, and you're a big man. You'd be six foot six. So uh, imagine your jet lag is an issue. <laughs> well, I think that's not so much, you know, I don't like to fly economy class around the world. I'd much prefer to fly first class around the world. But I'm a firm believer I would don't ask my team to do something I wouldn't do myself. And... We had a long conversation as a group of people in Rocked and said, look, one of the things we think culturally is so important in our organization is bringing people together as often as we can. 
And we just realized that we wanted to be a lot more liberal in end of quarters and training events yeah. and global induction and product people and product marketing and different people coming together all the time. And to be able to do that, we said it's not going to be feasibly economically to do that with the level we want to do in the organization if everyone's flying business class or first class. And so we just had a discussion about it. We put in place a bunch of things and everyone said, yes, we prefer to have the, the connection and the opportunity to meet these other people more often than to fly in a, in a more premium class of travel. And then once you've got that, that alignment in the organization, it's an easy discussion, but you can't then turn around and say, thanks everyone, that's great. <laughs> I'm gonna fly business class, you guys can all fly economy. It doesn't really in, inspire you know, that we're all in it together. It creates this us and them divide, which I don't think is healthy in a culture. I don't think it's healthy in a startup at all. Couldn't agree more. I don't think it's healthy in, in any, any organization, any sports team, uh, to, to see leaders that separate themselves for whatever reason uh, is, is never a good sign. It shows, it shows your lieutenants that, that you're in. You're in for this, you believe in the values of the business and, and you want to make it everything. And values alignment sounds so um, contrite today, but actually values alignment is all about those sorts of things. Mm. The rubber hits the road when you know what the values of an organization are when you pick up something like the travel policy. To me, that's like you can see the values of an organization very clearly when you read a document like that. People can plaster all these sorts of things on the wall, but actually go and pick up the way that they actually operate. Find the policy for expenses and find the policy for travel. And then you get a real sense of how that organization actually, the, the, how that business works. How do they hire people? You know, this values thing is one of those things, um, you know, you, you mentioned this concept, can you train people or, or can you coach people? If you don't have people aligned on the core things that you believe in, that's not something that can be coached in. You know, that's something that's either yes or no. <laughs> Absolutely, and I've read that you personally interview at some point every single employee that comes into Rock, and, and that I imagine is is part of that process to, to make sure that values piece is holding firm. I don't do anymore. So once we got to 180 or something, we trained up a bunch of people in the business that do what we call bar raises, and and they answer three key questions. It's a relatively sounds sounds like a simple process. The bar raises are from some other part of the business. So there's two key things when we hire people. One's a two-up process, which is we just fundamentally believe that people decisions are better made by separating from a couple of other people and get other views around those things. The second one is a bar raiser process. And the bar raiser process is three questions. Is this person aligned with our values? Uh, which is a yes or no. Yeah. Where does this person spike in competencies? We believe that competencies are something like tools in a toolbox. People either have them or don't have them. And, and we, in shorthand, look at um, only three things, which is competencies for us are IQ, AQ, and EQ, which is problem-solving capabilities, adversity. How would you rank those? As in, uh, I'm of the belief that EQ probably should be one, but some founders don't yeah. necessarily believe that. So look, uh, it, there's two ways to answer that question. My belief is actually you want a mix of capabilities in any team. And, you, and this is where the values question is alignment. The competency question is diversity. The reason we ask the question of where do they spike is we're actually not after the same thing. We're actually after a mixture of capabilities. In some roles, like my engineers, I want to be good problem solvers. In some roles, like sales, I want them to have great tenacity and yeah. adversity skills. And for some people in our people leadership areas, I want them to be really good developers and have good emotional skills. 
If you say what is the most uh, skill that drives the highest degree of success, actually the interesting one when you read the research is AQ is the most highly correlated with long-term success, which is kind of interesting, right? Those with the greatest degree of tenacity and, you know, never say die yeah. <laughs> are the ones that typically are uh, more the like... The grit and the hustle. The, the grit and the hustle. And the last question we ask people is, um, will this person raise the bar of the team yeah. they're going in? And they're the three questions. Mm. And if a bar raiser can't answer a yes to all three questions, this person doesn't come into our business. I love the framework. Uh, and you mentioned the importance of your engineers to be great problem solvers. You've got 100 engineers in Sydney. It's, a, it's not a shallow pool of talent. It's a, a growing pool of talent in Australia. But you're competing with Atlassian. You're competing with Canva. You're competing with Google has a big engineering team uh, in Australia. How do you think about recruiting that talent, incentivizing that talent, and is, is specifically in the engineering realm, and, and I guess aligning that talent as well. Yeah, it's a great question. I actually think that the competition in Sydney has driven a positive thing, which is we've created this magnet, which is attracts great engineers, because there is definitely this interesting thing that happens where you've got successful businesses all in the same ecosystem. And it's a, a little bit of the Silicon Valley thing mm. that's happening in Sydney now, which is you've got a lot of successful businesses using very modern engineering practices and they can all help each other. And part of that is talent, when they come into this market, no, it's not a single option. So they can move across lots of different businesses. The businesses can learn from each other. So you can actually pick up modern engineering, modern agile development practices. Yeah best-in-class tools, all of those sorts of things are things you can learn from each other. So it's not, I don't see it as directly competitive, just like Silicon Valley is not, the reason there's so many great businesses in Silicon Valley or come from Silicon Valley, a bunch of positive correlated things that happen when you bring great businesses together, as well as competitive issues on the talent side. The balance of that is probably 50-50, you know, you're probably competing a bit for talent, you're probably helping each other build talent, and those two things happen together. Also, when you get a great group of businesses that have a huge demand for talent, there's a whole industry behind you of universities and training and immigration policies and stuff that actually start to feed you talent. So there's a natural response to market need, which is in education or skill sets is, is met with lots of different ways. So I think, you know, net net, I think actually having all those businesses in Sydney is a real positive for us. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. TDM Growth Partners is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing private and public companies. TDM Growth Partners, investing in and helping build businesses we are proud of. Do you think Australia could be doing more to attract better engineering talent? Absolutely. I mean, we could always do more. I think what they've done on skilled, the skilled visa migration program more recently has been a positive. I think, you know, what we're trying to do in our education system is a positive. Could we do more? Yeah, I think there's, there's great opportunities to give people a greater opportunity after they've done advanced mathematics or advanced computer science degrees mm -hmm. to stay here longer. I think, you know, if we can more easily get younger talent that's probably not at the, the really senior skill visa level now and attract them from different countries, that would be a great influx way for us as well. I mean, I think companies that are paying very high salaries and naturally 
pretty good at working out who the right talent is to bring into their company. And the best thing about software companies and innovating businesses is those people are probably very good for the country. You know, they're not just good for Rocks or Canberra or Atlassian. They're good for us as a community and us as Australia. And I think the more we can do there, the better. I mean, there's lots of challenges in that area. I mean, we have uh, challenges with um, Australian policy around innovation is things like IP Australia, you know, mm. some of our tax policies, some of our immigration policies aren't great, but generally we've got a good combination of things working in our favour in Sydney. You know, we've got a great climate, a very attractive place to come and, and work and live with your family, good education, good healthcare, it's safe. Um, it's a place people want to be. And so when we're competing, we're competing with businesses in New York and Silicon Valley and London and all sorts of other great cities. And Sydney stacks up pretty well as a offering. Best city in the world. Yeah. You sound a little homesick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the next thread, and, and we touched on it, is around this idea of capital allocation and you know, not in the traditional sense, but you guys are growing quickly. Rock makes money, yeah. uh, which is so rare in this day and age for fast growing software businesses to be spitting out money and it was the same at Jetstar when you were running that business. So as you touched on, it, it could be a great product market fit, but my gut feel is it has something to do with your execution, how you view allocating capital, whether it being financial, human capital, what are you going to chase next, how you're going to stage out the next phase of growth and doing it in a really efficient manner. Yeah, look, I'm a real believer of the concepts um, around lean, and there's a, there's a bunch of books written on this, like Lean Startups is a great book. But to me, I think if you can prove out a concept in an efficient way, so you can be hungry about the problem you're trying to solve and not overinvest in it early on, you create a very good discipline around checking in regularly, limiting the amount of resources, creating clear alignment, clear expectation and goals. And you scale things when you get success rather than scaling things when you're trying to still work out what the right answer should be. Mm. And so I love the concept of, you know, small batch size, rapid experimentation and work out what works and keeping people hungry and efficient is a really positive. If an organization gets too uh, fat or people don't feel like they've got the right career development opportunities or there's not enough for them to do, you encourage a whole bunch of negative behaviors in a business and you tend to attract people that you're probably not going to be the ones that set you up for rapid growth and rapid success. So there's alignment, I think, around efficiency and leanness that actually is that helps you attract the right people that also helps you continue to scale up the business. And that discipline and rigor that you bring in from day one is so important, I imagine, in these businesses that are growing quickly. You've got to be careful there's a balance here. And look, sometimes I'm definitely guilty of going too far to the lean. And I look at businesses in the US and some of these guys that are scaling business incredibly fast. And, you know, there's examples like the WeWork one at the mm. moment that you probably look at and go. <laughs> I'm glad you're at the other end of the spectrum. I'm at the very much other end of the spectrum. But, you know, there's probably examples of decisions that I've made that have been the wrong as well because I've been too far the other way. So when I think about, you know, how quickly I invested in a people or finance team in my business, um, I probably delayed that too long. And that's because I was focused on efficiency and leanness in putting all my energy and all our resources into building the best thing we possibly could. Yeah. And so the lateness then investing in some of those functions impacts scalability and impacts stress on the rest of the management team. So there is a balance here and you've got to know, okay, my natural bias is this way um, and I can see other people's natural bias is the other way. Getting the balance right is important. It's, it's also easy to sit back retrospectively and say, oh, 
I might have done that six months, 12 months too late. Mm. But at the time, I'm sure it felt like the natural thing to do. It did, yeah. I mean, I, I'm also a believer that you probably want to bias towards over-investing in talent and leadership. Yeah. And sometimes if you're very focused on the cost and the dollars, you tend to do small micro decisions. And the opportunity cost of spending six months recruiting someone and then needing to recruit someone again in six months after that means that you, that's time that you're not spending on other parts of the business. So the balance is important. You've got to be careful about where you, where you invest your time and what the return is and how quickly you're going to have to reinvest that time again in something that otherwise you could have done once for two years or four years and then potentially spent your time on something else. Yeah. Rocked is making money, but that doesn't mean that you haven't taken on funding partners. I think you've taken on maybe $40 million in, in funding over the course of sort of six or seven years. So you, you have had this experience of, of raising money, what it takes out of you as a founder, it's, I'm sure, on the top of the mind of a lot of CEOs. How do you think about bringing equity partners in and that funding problem, so to speak? It's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm flabbergasted a little bit when I see people racing <laughs> huge sums of money without a real clear indication of what the payback or what the, you know, the, the likelihood of success can be much lower and they still raise huge amounts of money. I mean, I find the emotional energy is one thing and the effort you, you put into raising money. But the other thing that I do myself and I see lots of other founders do is when you bring investors into your business, it's like a personal weight. You know, you've actually got people backing you and backing, giving you their hard-earned dollars into your idea and your baby and your business. And there's an emotional cost to that, which is um, you're actually carrying an additional load as you're going through in your decision-making. And it's not just about your dollars and your return and the decisions you make for yourself. Now you're carrying other people's money. And that carries with it a sense of obligation like anything when you have someone backs you. And I find that emotionally is much tougher than actually the emotional uh, lens of how do I actually raise money. The raising money for me has never been a massive struggle. It's been, here's my business and I want to be transparent and honest. when you're running a bloody good business that's <laughs> spitting out money on the other side, people are queuing up. <laughs> it does help about with that. But it's also... It's also this, um, you've got to be completely honest, I think, when, mm. when you go to a group of investors. And I always think it's better to undersell where you're sitting today and let people have a little surprise on the up. You know, it's um, it, the emotional cost you, you carry as a founder anyway, it takes a whole burden off if people feel like they're getting a great deal and they get some, something out of it. And there's going to be ups and downs and there's always going to be things that aren't going to go all the way you think they're going to go. So banking that into your plan and making sure that you're thinking about that as you go out and make promises to investors is important. I imagine bringing the right partner in is as important. It's like a marriage and you've had some great investment partners, you know, Square Peg who are best in class, venture capitalists, you know, John Ho, who, who I think you met day one at, at BCG, uh, has, has been a great supporter of your business as well. How do you think about or do you have any advice for founders as to the type of partner they bring in? What I find super important is surround yourself with people you respect and people that you think are going to help you create better outcomes and decisions. If you can get yyourself surrounded by people like John Ho and Paul Bassett and these mm. sorts of individuals, you've got such a head start because when you've got that difficult decision and you want someone to bounce it off, you've got someone that is super smart, high integrity, 
and the ability then to connect with them and get a different point of view. In the heat and emotion of a big decision or you know a key hire, having someone that gives you a completely different perspective uh, and is thinking about it and backing you from, from what you're trying to achieve is so valuable. And, and entrepreneurship is an incredibly lonely thing. If you're a yeah. leader or a founder and you're trying to build a business, you're often making lots of decisions every day. And your team looks to you as like this invincible leader that is going to make every decision in the right way. But often you don't have experience in making a particular decision or you don't exactly know. You have an intuition, you have some data, you've got your, to people around you. But sometimes decisions, actually, it's very helpful to get outside advice. And often it's just the process of talking through something that can be very valuable. Sometimes it's getting their perspective. Sometimes it's actually talking through a problem that can be incredibly valuable. You were the effective founder of Rock, but there were two other co-founders, but they have essentially transitioned out of the business. And I'm interested in your experience of founder transition, because there are, I'm sure there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there where this is the case and, and things don't go as expected or other founders move on from the business. What are your sort of experiences, reflections and, and lessons you've learned about managing founder transition? Yeah, well, founder transition was an interesting one for me because I hadn't actually experienced this in I, all my business previously been sole businesses that I'd started and then uh, starting Jetstar, I was a hired gun, Jeff Dixon and Alan Joyce and the Qantas board. So um, getting into a business where I was actually making an acquisition and two other people coming into the business was, a, was an interesting journey for me. And I think in hindsight, I definitely made some mistakes along that, along that journey, as we all do. And they can be the most costly and the most difficult ones to actually navigate. They're the hardest emotional ones to navigate. But I was fortunate. I mean, Justin Viles, who's one of the other founders, has been with me on and off through this journey all the way through. And a lot of what Rock is has his fingerprints all over it. Yeah. Um, he's a very creative guy, ex-Google, and has a natural sense of design and what's uh, going to work from a consumer standpoint and is a very good business development guy and brought in the first key partners with Rock. So he brought in Ticketek and eBay. So I look at what Rock is today and I look at um, Justin's contribution. I think, you know, he's absolutely 100% uh, been there on that journey. He's not the executor in day-to-day, bringing the leadership team and knowing how to scale a business globally and all those sorts of things. But he's played an important role as a founder. And, you know, it's important to recognize that, I think, and step back and say, look, with founders and with people that have key roles like that, are there people that add a lot of value in that process? And look, the, the other person he had in his business early on didn't add a lot of value into where the uh, rock business actually ultimately went yeah. to. And that was a tough conversation. Um, but having that in a very frank way, based on uh, his skill set and where the business was going, ultimately gave him a better outcome in the long run because the business became a lot more successful and financially he reaped a huge amount of reward out of that. But it's an emotional transition. Yeah. And and saying it any other way is, is um, denying the difficulty you end up uh, having to face when you have all those conversations. And that's where it's really helpful having people like a Paul Bassett or a John Ho or other people that are highly respected because they can also come in and have a conversation with these people that are going through this transition and be a bit of a sounding board for them and say, look, I've seen this and is it more important for you to be financially successful? Um, You're really good at doing X, Y and Z and understanding where that goes is super important for them. And how would you describe your leadership style and 
how's that evolved over the years? Yeah, I think it's one of those things, you, <laughs> as you get older and wiser, as they say, you learn uh, that you definitely have lots to learn. <laughs> Every time you get a year older, you realize how much more you've got to learn. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the more you experience in leadership, the more you realize how much you need to learn with leadership. So I think as much as I've learned with leadership, I realize um, my leadership style early on was probably um, lacking a lot of uh, finesse. <laughs> it's probably the Reading best. Reading between the lines, you were a hard bastard. <laughs> I was a tough person yeah. to work for. People describe me as uh, incredibly tough to work for, but very, um, very rewarding from a career perspective. They got challenged, they got supported, but they learned a lot, and it was a it was a rapid ride, you know. So it was a it, it was tough for some people in they terms of. They call it old school leadership. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, for me, I'm I'm happy to be in the trenches. I'm happy to give people uh, the rope. I'm happy to be there as a sounding board. So I wouldn't say I've got a set um, leadership style, and it depends on the individual. You get hugely competent people, and you need to give them the space to actually get on. They come to you in their own way. Um, I think what's super important is you have discussions with the individual about their development and you have discussions about where they're doing really well and you have those in a way that creates trust and uh, creates a framework where they feel like they're personally growing. But I think in terms of broad-based decision-making, I think it's important to be able to step back and say, what's the right leadership style for a particular situation? And sometimes that's pushing the organization and saying, look, I want to get to 2X or I want to get to X, so I'm going to paint a vision of 2X and we'll get to X. Sometimes it's been supportive. Sometimes it's being conciliatory. Sometimes it's different, different styles work in different situations. And I think probably the greatest lesson as I've gotten older and somewhat wiser <laughs> is I tend to step back a little bit more and tend to give people a bit more time and tend to let people understand that there's, there's many different ways to get to a particular destination. And sometimes it's important to let other people make the choice and they might take a longer path to get there, but that sense of ownership and pride that they have in, in the execution and the sense of achievement is so important in, in scaling up a broader business. I love that sort of mental model of knowing that in certain situations things are required, but generally speaking, I will apply whatever is needed to make sure this works and to maintain that high expectation of outcome is important in that as well. You're, you're not slackening off in any sense. You, you're still going to run hard, but there's, there's different ways to skin a cat depending on the situation. I, I love that. And I think it's it's hugely important to have other people in the business that behave differently. So it's mm. it's really important that you've got people in your, in your business that are much more focused on people and softer skills and they're the connectors. You got other people that are pushing the organization even harder and they're all about outcome. And as a team, as you come together, um, you get these wonderful combinations of personalities and a, a group of very different thinkers and very different personalities in terms of the way they tackle a problem will achieve a much better outcome than everyone being exactly aligned in exactly the same way. A personal fascination for me is around people's high-performance routines. Uh, I haven't mentioned you, you run marathons. You've got five kids, as I said, your wife's a highly successful business person in her own right. Just talking about it makes me tired, actually, to think, well, how do you ensure that you're getting enough sleep? How do you consume information quickly? How do you have some Bruce time, so to speak, to ensure that you're at your best the whole time? Yeah, I think it's so important to have switch-off uh, mechanics and some people that's 
you know, a glass of wine. <laughs> Some people it's, you know, uh, doing X, Y, and Z. I have lots of things that I do that are really my passions and hobbies. And sometimes that's family. Sometimes it's simple as reading the book, watching a TV show. But it's about having those things that you love. And I tend to like to do things, I pick an activity depending on the level of stress, depending on what mode I'm in at that particular point in time, the level of activity will drive the switch off. So I love playing bridge, for instance, and yeah. it's, it's a game where my mental mind has to be completely focused on the game of bridge. So it forces you to switch off. You know, I like flying planes, I like running, I do a whole bunch of those sorts of things, and they are ways that force me to switch off. Running is a great exercise for me, and hiking I love as well, and skiing is a whole bunch of those fitness things, because the exercise uh, is a surprising way to actually process problems. Mm. You go for an hour long run, and you come back and everything feels like you've solved the world's problems. Endorphins uh, are pumping. <laughs> you haven't pushed yourself hard enough that you can't actually think it's it's your time to, to process. Yeah, I think there's something about the subconscious also that kicks in when the body is actually exercising that's super powerful. And it has a way of dealing with problems that are in a very different way than if you just sit and stew and stress on something. Yeah. In my own experience, uh, tapping into that subconscious and finding a way of tapping into that subconscious consistently is the key to high performance. Yep. And, uh, d distracting your conscious mind yes. is, is how you get the best out of yourself. Yeah. And you need balance. Uh, the, the other thing is, you know, it's great to have a life partner, kids and other things that create balance. So like when I go on leave and I go on holiday and we sit on a beach, I completely switch off. Um, and yeah, that's cool. And that's a, such an important skill because you go at 120%. And it is a skill, to be clear. People think, <laughs> oh, I'll just go and lie on the beach and switch off, but they can't switch off. They're still yeah. thinking about their business because that is essentially their deepest passion. Yes. What they're giving their whole working life to is their deepest passion. So to be able to switch off from that is a skill in itself. And I think we've created as a society a, a greater problem in amongst all what we do today in that I think kids are finding it harder and harder to switch off because this little device called the mobile phone, which we carry around with us now everywhere, has created this instantaneous uh, sense of anxiety where people are constantly needing to feel like they check in on something. And I think... Unfortunately, that's breeding in, into our children and our next generation, mm -hmm. I think, this inability to switch off. They don't know how to disconnect from social media, from email, from text, from everything else that's going on around them. And I think that's not a healthy situation. I think if they need to find ways like get up in the mountains and actually Absolutely. be disconnected for a week, delete their Facebook account, do something radical because uh, breaking that mental mode where they can actually disconnect will be ultimately, I think, set them up in a much stronger, uh, more successful stance. Could not agree with you more. And with four daughters, <laughs> you're, you're going to be up against it at times, I can imagine. Uh, one last question because you've been so generous with your time, but is there any lesson that you would tell your 25 year old self that you've learned in the years post that that really resonates with you yeah i think the most important lesson uh that i learned and it took me a long time to learn this um was your intuition about people is very very powerful and often we sit in a mental state when we're hiring and recruiting and leading and making decisions about people where we almost get locked in this sense of anxiety where we don't want to make those tough decisions or don't want to have that tough conversation. The most important thing I learned is that intuition is 90% of the time right. And facing into it doesn't mean 
and this person doesn't have a role for me, but actually talking through that early on and actively with people gets you always a much better outcome than uh, ignoring it or not facing up to it or pretending it doesn't exist. So I think whether that's you know bringing in a more senior person to fill a role or I've got something weird I think about this person, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm not 100% sure they're the right person or you know this person's not working out culturally for the business. Whenever you get those intuition, it's better to act. And acting faster on anything people related right typically has been the number one mistake and and having scaled very big businesses those mistakes can be incredibly costly and so if I was going back to my 25 year old self I'd say no matter what you read and no matter what you know how how aggressive you are on that be more aggressive <laughs> yeah I mean it's great advice and often that hard conversation is never as hard as what you think it's going to be when two people actually get to the bones of of the situation face to face. That's true. And I think one of the things people think about that is it's always going to be a negative outcome. Like I always have this discussion now when I'm teaching people how to performance manage or lead people. And you just go through this conversation in a different frame of reference. And you say, do you think this person is actually enjoying it? And what do you think their life could be if you actually had a more frank conversation mm -hmm. with them about where their skills and capabilities are? Ultimately, it's in their interest to know also how they're performing and where they're going and what their potential is. And ignoring that conversation is actually doing them a disservice. And when you shift the frame of reference where they think it's all about themselves or think it's all about the business and you frame it as those open conversations are just about the other individual as it is about the business or about the rest of the team, it changes the whole frame of reference then. It puts the sense of teamwork, that sporting team analogy, it puts the sense of ownership on the individual to actually think about the welfare of everyone in the business. Fantastic answer. Uh, so grateful for your time. I'm super excited to watch Rock grow in the, in the years coming. You're one of Australia's great entrepreneurs, one of the great executives, and I hope I've done this story justice, but thank you, Bruce Buchanan, for your time. Thanks a lot, Ed. Cheers.